0: Hi, welcome everyone to a new fresh episode of the Escapist Corner. I'm super happy to have you here today again. uh, Today we meet Dr. Sean Baker, uh, who is um, a pretty astounding guest. Uh, At least I was super flattered to have him on the show. Um, For those who don't know him, he is a former uh, medical doctor. He has been practicing that for you know almost thirty years. Uh, he was uh, in the military. He uh, is a former rugby player. He's a, a world record holder in uh, in uh, rowing. He is uh, in multiple uh, distances, and he is also um, you know he's been a record holder in powerlifting. He's been all over the place. He's also now attempting to go into the CrossFit uh, field. Um, he is—he's uh, 53 years old. He's probably one of the, the most ripped 53-year-old guys out there at the moment. Um, but mostly, what he, where he might be—you uh, know—where he might be the most known for is his um, book, the carnivore diet. And uh, he kind of got a lot of people into this uh, sphere of carnivore diet. Um, So, Michaela uh, uh, Peterson uh, started with that and that resulted in uh, Jordan Peterson taking that up and they've seen uh, massive, you know, health uh, improvements by doing that. Um, That's a completely different route. We didn't get too much into that. Uh, but we speak a lot about health, and uh, specifically how how uh, you know health providers uh, outside the hospitals are actually so important at the moment, and the hospitals are simply uh, they 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 are not capable to fix this, and um, uh, we we are definitely a part of this solution now to, to get people more. Uh, healthy and um, yeah, uh, Sean is not uh, dogmatic, uh, uh, what many people might think, he, he, he's definitely um, you know, he just wants the people to, to get well and he's been s- seeing so much suffering uh, through his, throughout his career I think, so he is uh, really doing this uh, for the right reason I would say. Um, but yeah, you can make up your own mind and uh, listen to this and maybe check out his other things um he, he's the founder of uh, meet rx to uh, meet i think that is um and uh yeah make up your own mind and um uh, yeah happy listening guys see you next time bye welcome to the escape corner we have a a new amazing episode. Uh, for those who are not watching, we have a an American guest today um, from Orange County, uh, California. Uh, he is uh, famous from for bringing out, uh, I would say, the, the one of the most controversial diets right now on on the uh, yeah on the market. Uh, we have Doctor Sean Baker on the show. Welcome, Sean. And uh, yeah, again, I'm very happy to have you uh, today. I I think we're going to have a pretty good discussion uh, about uh, actually your entire journey into this. Uh, So before we dive into all the carnivore stuff and so on, the the thing that I I would say is mostly interesting for me, and uh, that people probably neglect a lot is the um, your, your background. So, uh, Sean, where, um, you're, you're, you're an MD or, uh, you've been practicing, uh, medicine, uh, for many, many years. Um, but first, before we start with that, where, where are you from originally?
1: So surprisingly, I don't know if this is a German podcast, but I actually was born in Germany. I was born in Hof, Germany in, in, uh, in Bavaria. My father was in the US Air Force and military. There was a military base back in 1967. And so I've been able to visit that when I was 30 years old. I got to go see Hofe. So it was kind of interesting. But uh, so that's where I was born. I grew up, you know, and obviously moved back to the States when I was about one and and spent different times in different parts of the United States. Uh, Probably spent a lot of time in the Midwest and then out to Texas, uh, where I went to high school, college, and medical school. And then I kind of, Spent time in New Zealand uh, playing rugby down there uh, at a fairly high level and then came come back to the United States. I entered the military. Uh, it's kind of I had a break in my medical training. I went to college and medical school, and I decided to drop out of medical school to play rugby, which arguably was kind of a crazy situation, but I've, I've always made sort of, you yeah. know, different choices, I suppose. Uh, did time in the military as a nuclear weapons uh, launch officer, so I was, you know, I was one of the guys that would, you know, Basically, blow up the world if, that, if it came to it. But unfortunately, that never never eventuated. Um, played rugby for the military, you know, the armed forces team. You know, I continued to do that. Played for rugby right for about seven years till I was about 30, and then I got tired of just getting my head kicked in. And you know, maybe maybe my brain damage wasn't complete because I'm still here. But yeah. Uh, then I uh, you know then I you know I went back to medical school. The military paid for that, so I did my you know, I did I did a civilian medical school. Uh, in Texas, and then uh, did an orthopedic surgery residency for five years, also in Texas. Went back in the military. You know, did some time in the Afghanistan War, taking care of lots of trauma. Um, you know, during that time, I was still an athlete. You know, I was I went from rugby to powerlifting, where I set uh, U.S. Uh, uh, national records in in the deadlift. You know, I got I got up to 350 kilos as a drug-free athlete, um, and then I transitioned over to some of the strongman type stuff i did for a few years competing at the national level at that uh drifted then into kind of the throwing the highland games which maybe i don't know if uh in wales i know scotland is where the highland games originate. i don't know if they do much of that in wales probably not as much but you're probably familiar with it so i put a kilt on and threw stuff won a national championship a world championship as a master's athlete did a little track and field where i where i was an all-american masters athlete in the discus the Heavyweight and superweight throw got into competitive indoor rowing on the concept, 2, Where I leaned out, got down, you know, dropped about 40 50 pounds, uh, and ended up setting uh, three world records and six American records on that thing. And then currently, I'm uh, you know, I'm kind of transitioned into starting to do CrossFit now. It's kind of a new challenge. I'm targeting, I'm 53 now, and I'm targeting the 55 age categories when I think I'll have sufficient. I won't suck so much at certain things where I can compete, so we'll see yeah
0: uh yeah we were uh we were also talking about who who of us would beat you in rowing first
1: yeah I think rowing, <laughs> I think rowing I'm pretty confident i I could do pretty well now if it came to handstand push ups and walking on my hands and and muscle ups and some of the gymnastics stuff i'm I'm definitely not not the best guy to plan on that stuff yet
0: yeah um. I can I can say generally I I mean I'm I'm pretty confident on the row or two but uh, when I see the numbers you're pulling I I know it's it's a long way there um, and I, I don't know my the most dreadful uh, row I I have to do uh, is always the 1K I don't know that that's the one that hurts the most uh, how's it for you. <laughs>
1: You know, I really haven't done very, you know, I, you know, my best one K was two fifty four. I did that and that really wasn't much of a real effort for me. I mean, I, I mean, I think I can go sub two fifty in that. I think I can get the, the 50 plus world record in that. Um, but I, I just haven't done a lot of one case, you know, I, I, there was a little period of time where I kind of trained for it. And, uh, I, you know, I was always more of a sprinter and, you know, that was 500 meter and below 500 meter, one minute, 100 meter. I really enjoy those. I mean, the 500 meters can be pretty painful at the end, obviously, but uh, um, Right now I'm been I've been working on, you know, longer rows and sometimes as much as 20,000 meters at a, at a, at a, You know at a time. And so mm-hmm. I think I'm gonna revisit the 1k probably You know in, in in a few months and see if I can't just pop that world record out on that, you know, and and, and see how that goes So why not? yeah why not yeah sure if i can do it i'm gonna do it yeah i mean it's it's uh i you know it's it's funny i i continue even as i get older I continue to see improvements in in all things yeah you, know, you know obviously the, the one nice thing about switching sports over crossfit is you see rapid improvement where you were really horrible at something you were, and, that, and that's and that mentally is easier you know when i got to rowing you know particularly like 500 meter row and i got you know my best 500 meter was 114.5 and you know that that's yeah that was at age 50 and that's a pretty decent time uh but then just to take one tenth of a second off that requires an enormous amount of work and effort and time whereas to go from you know doing a a paltry amount of pull-ups to doing a lot of pull-ups takes a fraction of the time to to do it so it's fun to from from a psychological standpoint it's fun to have a new sport where you can you can continue to see improvement which i'm enjoying right now but i'm still i'm still keeping rolling as a a pretty pretty decent staple so i'm not going to give that up just yet why did you uh, gravitate towards
0: the rowing in the first place?
1: Well, I'm built for it. Um, you know, I just, I just kind of, I, I, I don't, I, I remember, I remember looking at the rowing machine maybe 20 years ago. I mean, this concept too has been around forever. I think I maybe rowed a little bit. I kind of liked it, and then I just kind of got to where I was tired of chasing this strength all the time. You know, it, you know, it, I was, I was probably 45, 46 years of age. And I'd still been just focusing on strong, 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 explosive. And I, I, I hopped on a rower and I just said, I'm going to pull foot because I was kind of a, a little bit aware of CrossFit. I, you know, I had done some CrossFit stuff when I was a military Gosh, It was at 2008 was the last time I was, was it 2011. So maybe 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago but I I always look across. as Look, I'm not built for it. I'm too tall, too heavy. I'm never going to be across. You know, most guys that went across for games are five foot, 900, you know, 180 pounds or what is that? 85 kilos or something like that. Um, and I'm, I'm not that, and I'm, and I've got too many weaknesses, but I saw the rowing machine. I said, well, I could get on the rowing machine. So I hopped on there, did a, did a 500 meter row and it was like, and it was like, and I didn't know it at the time, but it was it was kind of a junky, beat up machine. It was not in a good condition, so it probably compromised. But I pulled like a one thirty-two or one thirty-three, and it was pretty easy. And I said, "Well, I'm gonna try it again." I came back the next day. I pulled a one twenty-five, five hundred meter row. First time I did it, I said, "Well, this is interesting. Let me look up the records." And I started looking at the world records for my age group, and I saw that at that time it was you know one sixteen. I'm like, well, "That's like nine seconds away. I could do that." So I started training for it. I got I got an Olympic gold medalist who was who lived near me that I just kind of found and he he kind of helped me with technique. And you know, I just continued to train it and you know, long story short, I ended up breaking the records and uh you know, just kind of just found, found, found I I enjoyed it. I, I I just I found it. I really enjoyed the motion. I enjoyed the way it felt. I felt I felt I'm you know, I had what it takes to be a sprint rower. You know, I had the strength and the and the, and the height, you know, cuz obviously being taller is a is a pretty significant advantage for that. You know, as far as uh, rowing goes, it was, I, I, you know, this is, I've always sort of, you know, kind of pick sports with the intention of being someone that could compete at a very high level national champion, you know, at least competing or, or competing for that. And so going into CrossFit for me is probably a sort of a, maybe it's a far fetched type of thing being, you know, six foot five with 39 inch sleeves. And, you know, I've leaned out significantly to to try to prevent the weight being a hamper, but I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm still, the only thing I think is, you know, as I'm older, you know, I, I I see the what happens to older people is that the competition gets smaller and smaller. There's not so many old guys. And so I, I you know, I don't know if I'll be able to, like I said, I'm gonna give myself two years. to, to learn the skills, to get good at the skills, to, to, to see, you know, I think I can get the fitness is not an issue. I don't think I can, I can, you know, fitness is just fitness. It's just pushing us doing the work, but having the skills, having the mechanical advantages, having the, you know, the movement, the movements down in an efficient manner is what's going to take time and effort. I think. Yeah. Yeah, sure.
0: Um, Yeah. I I think I have a ton of questions when it comes to, um, to the CrossFit uh, thing for sure. Um, but I wanted to, uh, kind of go back a bit to the medical, um, uh, part of, uh, of you and your story. Cause I, I, I heard some of your stories from when you were, uh, working, uh, I think it was in, was it in Texas where you were working at, uh, uh, like a pediatric pediatric care for, for children.
1: Um, well, yeah, I worked at the Shriner Burn Unit uh as a, as a as a as part of my residency training. So yeah. when you start your surgical training, you you kind of start out doing a general uh schedule where it was, you know, vascular surgery, general surgery. Uh we had, you know, a few other uh one of them was a pediatric burn center. So I was working at a pediatric and This is one of the first things I did. I think it was the second month I was there. And so it was Kind of like being thrown to the walls from somebody fresh out of medical school because you don't really know anything. Honestly, I mean, you've got a medical degree, but you know practically nothing. You're relying upon nurses and you know other doctors that can kind of teach you. But the way that was set up was, uh, uh, you know, it was a burn center. We had horrifically burned little children. I mean, these kids were 99 uh, percent burned, total body surface area burns. Kids that were dousing gasoline and you know in Mexico and burned to pieces and you know, the goal was to keep them alive, and we were constantly doing skin grafts on these kids, you know, week after week after week and hoping some of the skin would grow and constantly fighting infection and keeping them fluid resuscitated because they would just leach fluid. When you don't have skin, all your fluid leaches out, and so it's just a horrible situation, and it's painful, and it's not pleasant, and the kids are obviously suffering. And uh, uh, the, the, the place I was at, it was like, you know, it was, you know, they, they cheated, treated all the killed children for free trying to burn center, which was very nice. I mean, well, they're, they're, everything was free, but there was no like quitting. It was like, we will keep these kids alive. No matter what, there's no pulling the plug. There's no euthanasia. There's no, you know, end of life stuff. It's like, they will be kept alive no matter what, unless they die. And it was just a kind of a, you know, for someone who didn't know anything about anything, and then you were, you, you know, at night, literally at night, when you took call, you were the only doctor. And you had sixteen critically cared, k- burnt kids in an ICU, and it was on you to keep them alive. You know, the, the, the end of the night, it was they'd send them, okay, don't let any kids die. And you're like, I don't, man, I, I'm still learning how to do this stuff. So it was a very uh, uh, scary, humbling experience. Unfortunately, the nurses were so good, and they were just like, you know, they would say this patient has this going on. You'd like, well, what do you guys normally do in this situation? And they would tell you, we normally do this and this. Okay. Do that. <laughs> and that's how you learn. You just kind of finally figure it out. And then you just, you know, fortunately you try to keep the kids alive. And I was, you know, fortunately I, I never had a kid die on me, which was good, but I was only there for yeah. a month. I'm sure we had but children die. Yeah. We had children die while I was there, but none of them died like on my shift when I was like the guy that was yeah. in charge. And we literally were working, I mean, it was it was an exhausting experience because we would literally work for 40 hours straight and then you would go home for about six hours to sleep and then you come back and do another 40 hours straight and you do that every single day, you know, day for a month. And it was something like, it was like something like 130 hours a week of work and like, you know, something like 16, eight, 16 hours of sleep a week, you know, something ridiculous.
0: I, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's this classical thing from, from medicine, right? It's, uh, um and uh, i i heard this somewhere w- where this come from like why why are you doing why why is medicine so hard right why do you have to do uh, like so many hours you're you don't you don't have sleep and you make like all these bad calls because you're just fatigued right and um uh what i understood this is uh based on because um uh, one of the first leading doctors in the states he he was a drug addict uh, and uh, he was uh, s- smashing coke all the time and uh, he was like you know constantly on drugs and just wanted to you know yeah he was wet- awake all the time and uh, he wrote like all these crazy rules and statements that like when you're um uh, what's it called when you're going uh when you're, uh, not stationary, but you're, you're, uh, you're doing your, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the word, but, uh, when, when the doctor, uh, starts, he has to st- internship. Oh, yeah. Well, internship? it's not, it's an internship, but you are basically living in a hospital. Um, yeah. uh, there's another word for that, but, um, uh, residency,
1: residency. Re- yeah, there yeah. you
0: go. There you go. Yeah. And, um, yeah, he basically made up all these rules, and we are still living this and it's makes no simple sense to have doctors fatigued all the time, and, and running on their teeth. Uh, and of course, you learn a lot, you, you learn how to handle stress and pressure and everything. But I'm also seeing like all these doctors, uh, which we we'll probably get into a bit later is like all these doctors that have like, so poor health uh they're like who are you to take care of anyone you know you can't you can barely take care of yourself anymore
1: yeah you know? i mean the thought the thought is you know you 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 know you deal with stress you deal with sleep because you know you never know what's going to happen you should be able to function with minimal sleep and make the right decisions and so if you're trained for that that's that's what's considered how they do it now fortunately they pass laws in the u.s where you know it's like you can only work 80 hours in a week even, but, but that's a lot of that is still so, so occurring. Right? They, uh, they uh, get, get around that. People don't record their hours correctly. You know, it's, it's there's kind of a pressure. Uh, you could write that you work too many hours, but you know, you may not make it through the program. I mean, there's all kinds of pressure on that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's gotten better than it was back when I did it, you know, 20 some years ago, but uh, it's still, you know, it's still kind of a, you know maybe not the best environment And there's people that say that the training is inferior now because you're not exposed to as much because they're just not seeing and the other thing was you know you need to see as much as possible so yeah. if you're always there at the hospital always awake always working you're going to be exposed to more and more different things different experiences and then you'll, you'll know how to deal with those but yeah. um it's yeah it's it's probably not the best system quite honestly yeah. I mean,
0: uh, I'm just thinking the same situation as, OK, you want to be the best CrossFit athlete, right? OK, are you going to do CrossFit workouts for 18 hours a day? Or is it better to have you know, uh, a plan where you train uh, towards some stuff yeah. and you have enough recovery so you can actually do stuff? So I uh, think the human psyche and everything works like that. You need to have this kind of the stress and then you have to have the recovery always. Um, but, um, just shortly, why did you go to medicine to start with?
1: You know, I think, well, I mean, when I was very young, I mean, even I I can remember, you know, with sixth grade, which is gosh, how old is that? I'm probably 12 years old. I was fascinated with science and, you know, I did that. that I I really enjoyed it. And then I, I think somewhere maybe by age 16, I decided I was going to be a physician. And so I started studying for the test and the, the medical college acceptance test at 16. So I was, you know, I, I was, I remember I was working at a restaurant and I, I, at some point I could study while, I, you know, I was reading my book while I was working at a job where I could, I could study and, and do that. And I just remember always wanting to do that. Um, you know, I, I did very well in school, you know, I did very well in the medical college acceptance test. Um, and, you know, that was my plan. And I, you know, I, I just knew, I was, knew I wanted to do it and did it. I ended up choosing orthopedics just because it it fits so well with what I was doing athletically. You know, a lot of, a lot of orthopedic surgeons have a very good knowledge of the musculoskeletal system. And obviously as an athlete, you get a pretty good knowledge of the musculoskeletal system. If you care about it, you know, you should. Uh, and so those things went hand in hand for me. And I, I just, you know, I guess from an early age science and medicine was what I wanted to do.
0: Yeah. And, um, then uh, being you know studying medicine uh getting into the or always being in this uh realm of fitness um when did you see or when did you first time get like um the realization that nutrition is actually not Uh, is something that nobody uh, knows particularly much about like if you look into sports uh it's very weak uh you know nutrition guidance uh, especially like just 10 years ago or 20 years ago um and um uh, same thing in medicine i would say Uh, so when when did that realization come to you that hey there's something off with the nutrition guidance uh, we are having
1: yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, I think quite honestly the fitness industry and the sports performance industry has probably done a better job in looking at nutrition as as it impacts it than we have in medicine. Medicine, we have really largely ignored it for the most part. During my training, I mean, we really never discussed phys- uh, nutrition in any real sense into how it might impact a particular disease. Now, we would say a malnourished person is high or high risk for this or that, or we might say that, you know, obesity is related to eating too much. And therefore that's a problem, but, but no more specific than that. I mean, that was probably the the, the whole entirety of my knowledge about nutrition, leaving medical school, uh, other than, you know, what, what, what vitamins led to what deficiency states. But, um, it wasn't until I personally started to realize that, you know, I could not train any harder, uh, you know, as an athlete, and, and not fix my nutrition because I, up until that point, I mean, I didn't eat bad diet. I would eat what most people would say was a pretty average quote unquote healthy diet. You know, obviously I had some things that weren't healthy from time to time, but I, I wasn't living on junk food. I was eating, you know, fairly quality, quality ingredient diet. Um, but despite that at 42, 43, I started to develop these metabolic syndrome diseases you know starting to, see the, see things catch up to me. Whereas, you know, when I was in 20s, it didn't matter. I, I could just power through it. And, you know, and I believe that as long as I trained hard, I could eat, you know, I could have dessert and do whatever I wanted. Um, and then I, then I kind of went on my own personal dirt journey and started reading about it. And then as I kind of got more and more comfortable at what was working for me, I started to sort of try to influence my patients because I felt that, you know, we, we have these people that are suffering from, And really, the interest really was because as a surgeon, I was like, well, I can't replace your knee. I can't do your hip replacement until you lose weight. And whenever I told people to lose weight, they would never lose weight. They might lose a few pounds, and then they come back three months later, and they've gained those pounds back. And at this point, they're crying in pain, and we end up saying, okay, we'll do the surgery anyway. And one, the surgery was more difficult. It's harder to operate on obese people. Complication rates tend to be higher. The success rates tend to be lowered sometimes Um, and so you know there was a big push to let we're gonna try to minimize obesity and so one of the things hospitals will do or they did minded they hired a bariatric surgeon to do gastric bypass surgery on patients so they would lose weight so then they could have another operation so you have an operation so you could have another operation which when you think about it it, it's kind of crazy in that sense but then as I discovered um, you know, a dietary pattern that worked for me. And I, at this time I was doing, you know, basically more of a ketogenic diet. Um, I started seeing patients that would do it. And the ones that would do it, um, were often having very significant success with weight loss, but before they get, they, they obtained weight loss, we were often seeing joint pain. The reason I was going to operate on them disappear. And so it became very interesting. I was like, well, you know you' the reason we're going to do the operation is no longer there then we don't need to do the operation and and, 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 I, and to me that was good. but you know that for a hospital it's not so good because the bottom line is they need the throughput they need the, they need the procedures they need the, they need the revenue from this stuff. That's why they're in business. and when you start to sort of mess with that business model, um, it sort of makes the administrators upset. and so I, I kind of you know had my run-ins with the administration. And you know, ultimately, it ended up me leaving leaving that that practice, and then leaving you know the profession entirely, and reaching out into lifestyle and nutrition, and that's kind of where I am now. And so I've been spending the last few years mostly just helping people in lifestyle, and it's been far more rewarding for me—not uh, necessarily financially, but from a just sense of doing the right thing—and that's where I'm at today.
0: Would you say you're probably helping more people at the moment than
1: uh I yes, I mean without a doubt. I mean, I think not only just helping people uh with number of people I've been able to reach, but um the the overall impact has been much larger. You know, I might be able to, you know, have somebody with a sore shoulder and give them a cortisone injection and their shoulder stops hurting for six weeks. Great. But what I'm doing now is, I mean, it's lifelong impacting. It's changing people's entire lives. It's changing almost every single component of their health, whether it's depression, whether it's chronic pain, whether it's gastrointestinal problems, whether it's, you know, joint pain, whether it's, you know, uh, mental health issues, autoimmune diseases, so on and so forth, skin issues. I mean, these things are all getting better, uh, with just simple, you know, lifestyle interventions, which I think is how we should be treating the vast majority of this should be the frontline treatment uh, on everything, uh, almost everything.
0: So actually, that, that comes to a point I had, um, which I think is really important, because I don't think, I think people disregard nutrition as a way to improve like anxiety or, or anything along those lines. So can you touch on why you think it is that nutrition can be so impactful in terms of anxiety and the other things you mentioned?
1: Yeah, so what I see reliably um, with people that, you know, per, change, change diet, at least the diet that I'm certainly uh, helping people with, is that joint pain, digestive issues, and mental health issues get better. And I think one of the reasons we see them get it is because those are very common issues, and so common things, you know, you're just seeing more of them. But I think what we are seeing more and more is, you know, uh, mental health disorders Clearly, it's physiologic. It's not like the brain is some magic organ that doesn't respond to the physiology and the environmental inputs, like the liver and the muscles and the bones and kidneys do. It's a it's, it's an organ that's exposed to blood. It's exposed to things we we ingest, things we inhale, things that you know impact us. Uh, and so, when we realize that, we say, well, "What is the physiology that's going on in the brain?" And it's very very complicated. I'm not I'm not going to pretend it's some simple thing. But we do know that. There does seem to be a relationship with gut health and brain health. And so our diet does impact gut health. Uh, we also see that brain seems to respond to uh, metabolism. Brain metabolism is also responsive to, and, and that is dependent upon nutrition as well. And so we have those two big things. And so what I see is um, a lot of people that have GI issues, gastrointestinal problems, sometimes they have permeability issues where there's you know, too much stuff getting past the gut barrier and causing inflammation throughout different different membranes causing permeability membranes we have a blood brain barrier that becomes leaky when our gut is leaky we have all kinds of different membranes that, that, that sort of no longer function as as they're designed uh, and so that probably has an impact on on uh, brain physiology and therefore brain function and mood and, and, and mental health uh, and then so does i think um stability of energy and so when we see people that are on a very unstable energy diet, and this can be a diet where you're constantly snacking and having these wild fluctuations in glucose where it's up and down and up and down. I think that leads to lability of mood where the mood is like that. You know, We see the same thing where mood follows uh, energy. And I think we, we see that when we flatten that out with a diet where glucose is more stabilized, we see a bit more stabilization in mood, and so I think those are probably the two. And then the other thing is, I think just better nutrition. I think brain health, just like anything, it responds to nutrition. Like our muscles require nutrition, our brain does too. I think there's compounds that you know we are deficient in. You know whether it's uh, certain minerals, certain vitamins, certain you know other other compounds. Uh, when we're deficient in that, our, our brain just doesn't function as well
0: um yeah i mean um going into the if we look at this from like the lenses of crossfit um i mean for me uh before crossfit uh, i i was uh, playing ice hockey and stuff like that and we had more or less no nutritional guidance there right it was like yeah you should carb load with a lot of pasta and uh and that kind of stuff um but then uh starting with crossfit also i really didn't have any interest in in the nutrition at all uh but then you know you started to get more interested into it and so on and now um like we we've, we've also did this transition within our uh you know within our uh, you know box here or in this crossfit realm is that we were pivoting more into the health part of uh taking care of people and uh like, um, the, the base of, uh, CrossFit philosophy is, uh, is nutrition, right? So you, you should fix your nutrition. That's the first thing to fix. Um, but not, it's not ever always like the first, first one you start with, of course, like for guys, it's usually like, yeah, you want to get a six pack or more muscle. You would want to pull more weight and, uh, and then you get interested into nutrition and, uh, for women, it might be, you know, they want to lose a couple of pounds. So that's their motivation. And then they might start to get into uh, nutrition. But um, um, I think it's, it's still there's still like a big barrier to get to people's head to we need to we need to fix this uh, bigger, vaster problem, which is uh, the nutrition uh, industry, I would say. Uh, where we are looking at, um, you know, just in the U.S., eighty percent of all all, all all hospital bills are paid by, or eighty four percent, sorry, are paid because of uh, chronic chronic illness, right? So it's diabetes and all this stuff uh, caused by overweight and uh, and everything. So that's we could save trillions of dollars just by, you know getting our, our food, (laughs) food shit together, right? So um, uh, what's been what has been the most, you know, I know, you're sharing a lot of like, um, good stories about uh, success stories about uh, people and so on. But is there anything particular that you feel like is uh, that resonates the most uh, within people? So they actually want to listen. That they want to change because you've been there with these people that want to, you know, have a knee surgery and everything. And you know, they actually need a lifestyle change. Uh, how do we reach those guys?
1: You know, I, I think you, you touched on a very important point. You know, I, I have said the healthcare system itself is sick, at least in the U.S. And in, uh, you know, I, I think in Europe, which I mean, there's probably some better practices in Europe. You know, depending, we spend a lot of money here in this country. Something like 3.5 trillion dollars a year, and most of that is, is, as you correctly pointed out, is to pay for the management and maintenance. Quite honestly, I, 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 we're maintaining chronic disease. We're not really curing or getting yeah. people off. It's just that like, they get plugged into the system where it's a, it's a never-ending stream of pharmaceuticals and you know other pills and procedures. And so we have to get away from that. It's 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 not sustainable. Healthy people. I mean, unhealthy people are not environmentally sustainable. The healthcare system is, is an environmental drain. Um, so I, you know, I think what CrossFit is doing and I know Greg Glassman has uh, sort of stepped up to CrossFit Health and he's really taking interest in that. In fact, I might have an opportunity to meet with Greg uh, in the near future. Um, I, know, I know the director of the CrossFit Health part and so we're gonna maybe hopefully meet up. But I think that um, the, you know, the thing that really resonates with people who works are success stories. I mean this has been what i've found you know when you know because most people can relate to another person and and see the struggle they 've had and that that impacts them more than anything else more than a study more than you know there 's a lot of money is paid paid in these studies, and everybody 's arguing about what 's the best diet and but honestly you know, people get bored with that stuff. They'll read a study and they'll, they'll talk about it. A few of the intellectuals will argue this and that, but what actually makes a person that needs to change their life cycle change is generally powerful, you know, stories. You know, these are the things that move. I mean, think of, think of the things that made these huge changes in the world. And you look at World War One, where we had, you know, uh, was it the, the the Duke from, was it, I can't remember if he was from Sarajevo or whatever was shot and that story, you know, these stories, these one little incidents incite this big change. And so there's somebody has got a story out there uh, that will influence thousands, if not millions of people. And, you know, once you reach a certain threshold, I mean, CrossFit, you know, is now a $5 billion a year industry. I mean, and this is, you know, this, this came from, you know, basically a few guys doing some stuff and got in shape. And I was like, this looks pretty cool. And it grows and that's how we see this spontaneous growth. And so I think the nutrition movement can be the same way. Now the problem is you have a lot of vested interests that don't want to see that happen. You have a lot of people that make a lot of money selling us junk food. They make a lot of money selling us, you know, pharmaceuticals. And so these are, you know, multi-trillion dollar industries that, you know, they're not going to let go easy. They 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 like the business model. It works pretty well. And You get these people hooked on this junk and they they're lifelong customers. And so uh you know you've got a lot of pushback and fight but i you know I, I think there's a tipping point you know if you can reach a certain percentage of the population uh and then they stand up you know this is and this becomes the problem you know you 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 do the right thing and you're 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 you're, you're attacked by by the vested interests um you know you see it in a crossfit community you know, you get marginalized oh look at those crazy crossfit people they're a bunch of cultists uh and i you know and i i you know well i i see where some of that you know where you can make that argument to somebody but I, i've always thought that look these people are getting in shape these people are doing things or are making a positive impact how can that not be good you know i mean obviously you can always adjust and improve things but my goodness you take that relative to the standard person you know the average person who is sedentary who is i mean just not happy. I mean, it's not, it's, you know, I would say the the majority of those folks are not particularly happy. And I think that's ultimately what we want to do in life. We want to feel good. We want to, you know, I think performance being free of pain, being functional, in my view is, is, is leads to happiness. We,
0: we always, um, we always forget that. in inside our walls here, like we, we meet all our uh, members <clears throat> and, uh, we see how, how, um, good they are right so uh, they can do this they can do that they can do snatches they can do pull-ups they can do <laughs> hundreds of pull-ups and push-ups and whatever and uh uh then then you know a member comes to us and says like oh man i feel so bad because i couldn't i couldn't reach the 10th round of 20 pull-ups you know and uh and uh we're like oh yeah we can get you to 15 rounds maybe if we do this and then like wait a minute wait a minute, what are we talking about here? Like, if we look outside the window here where people are passing, we can sit here all week and we can we can wait here for one week and nobody will pass here that is fitter than you. <laughs> so this the standard or the average Joe out there is so far behind what we're doing. And we're kind of in this, I would say in this super awesome positive environment where we only meet people that are improving, are improving they're uh, getting more and more, you know, into diet into nutrition, and um, we forget very fast, like how how bad it is uh, outside. So uh, we have these big windows here. So we can actually see the street and look at the people that are passing all the time. So it's, it's, uh, sometimes we kind of have to pinch ourselves and say, like, wait, slow down. Uh, we are at 15 rounds is not like the, the the thing we're really looking at here, we're we're looking at that we we are actually just uh, we're improving, but we don't have to stress about you know we're gonna reach that tenth round, I promise. But like we don't have to stress it. We are already doing such a good job, uh, and especially like you as a member. But. Um, um, what I was, uh, so let's get get into the uh, more of the diet. then. so you went from the ketogenic diet, and then you land into in this carnivore diet, from which you also read. Uh, yeah, you wrote a book about, about uh, the carnivore diet. And um, how, how did that happen? Where? How did you get, get to that?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was purely uh, my decision to do the diet was purely based on performance. You know, I was, I was on a ketogenic diet. I noticed some improvements, you know, particularly as I was, you know, I was you know approaching 50 years of age and I had been training my whole life as an athlete you know, have aches and pains and things that are sore. And I saw with a ketogenic diet that sorted, sorted to help. Um, I saw my performance was pretty solid overall. I didn't really lose a lot of performance on the diet. I mean, I, I've been lean. I was, I was, you know, I'd have lost weight. So there's a little bit of impact going from, you know, 280 pounds or, you know, that was 125, 128 kilos to 110 kilos, you know, you lose a little bit of strength with that. But I, you know, I just kind of was continuing to, to, to read about this nutrition and I, and I just kind of stumbled across a group of people that were doing this all meat diet. And I thought, you know, when I first saw, it, I said, well, that sounds pretty weird, pretty crazy. And I just kind of, just kind of kept reading and reading their success stories and just like I said, success stories sort of compel this. And I saw some people that were doing really, really, really good, and I started reading back into the history of, of societies and different athletes that had used meat-based diets uh, for performance. And I thought, well, why not just try it? So I, I experiment, I would do three days of, you know, basically steak and eggs, and yeah, you know, I felt pretty good. And then I would re, you know, reload with, you know, some other foods, and then I went a week, and then I went two weeks, and then I went 30 days. And the whole time I felt generally pretty good. And then, you know, after 30 days, um, having doing this, I've been on social media and kind of joking about how I was going to die of scurvy because I didn't have, you know, vitamin no, vitamin C or, or heart disease because of all the saturated fat. You know, none of that, of course, happened. And then I went back to my regular diet, and I just honestly didn't feel as good. I mean, I just was like, I don't feel as good as I do on just a meat-based diet. So I said, well, I'm just going to keep eating meat. For now and see how i do and then i went to two months and eventually went to six months and then this time at that time i started to notice my athletic performance was really starting to to pick up quite a bit and this is not like a new person that's never trained i've been literally training for you know at that time something like 37 years so i been mean, i've been putting in the time and effort and i and i legitimately saw about an eight percent improvement in my strength and my rowing performance when i look when i calculate a wattage which is a very significant improvement when for somebody who was already at a american record level you know on a rowing machine and so within six months I'd, i again world record after world record i mean i lit a little 500 meter world record like 10 times in two weeks i mean i just did it day after day after day after day and my recovery was excellent i was able to train every single day at a high intensity without being sore you know it was it was, it was kind of remarkable and i saw re- improvements in strength um and so I just continued doing it. And, and then, you know, I've just kind of continued to push it. And then, you know, my experiences, I was fairly public on it, inspired a lot of other people to do it. And so a lot of people saw similarly what I saw, they saw improvements in health markers, they saw improvements in body composition, many of them saw improvements in athletic performance, better recovery, same thing I was seeing um, for all kinds of different sports. And so now I am, you know, three and a half years of been doing this diet and, you know, I continue to, continue to thrive and nothing, none of the sort of the bad things that I was told was going to happen have happened. So it's curious to me.
0: Um, so what
1: would you say to um, uh,
0: a yeah, physician, like a, a medit- medical doctor? So I know plenty of them and um, uh, I think half of my neighbor, neighbors are medical doctors. And, um, I like to talk about diet, uh, diet and nutrition with them and, um, they're not always that super interested in it, uh, strangely enough, but, um, what would you say to, uh, uh, like a medical doctor who, who would say like, oh, the, that's not, that, not, that's not good. Like that could be dangerous, uh, for a patient.
1: Well, I mean, I would say, well, let's see what the results are. You know, why don't we challenge that That because we don't we don't know. I mean, I mean, there's you know, there's fortunately a, a study in progress right now on that with the Harvard University's doing. But I mean, we've got some we've got a very few studies on a fully meat based diet in the literature. All of those studies show good outcomes. I mean, every single one of them. I mean, if we go back to the 1928 studies, the, the five or six period studies that Thilmer Safonsen did back in 1928, where they had the top leading researchers of the day you know, predicting the same thing, oh, bad things are gonna happen. They do the study and nothing bad happened. In fact, the outcomes were very good. And then there's, you know, scattered case, case reports throughout the literature, which all show good outcomes. So there's no real evidence on this diet. You know, now we, we people will conflate a standard American diet, a junk food diet, and they'll say, well, you know, the average American eats more meat, and they eat a lot of sugar and junk food and when you actually analyze the american diet i mean there's very little meat particularly red meat in the diet i mean beef is only something like two ounces a day which is a which is an abysmally small amount the vast majority of the american diet is plant-based it's something like 75 percent plant-based now much of that is sugar much of that is refined grain much of it is oil you know seed oils and things like that so that's all i would argue not very good but it's clearly not a meat-based diet uh, and so what I'm saying is you know if we take people that are uh, that have diabetes that are obese that have visceral fat that have high inflammation markers, uh, you know maybe have chronic gastrointestinal issues, mental health issues, and they go from that situation to they're leaner, they've lost body fat, their blood glucose is stabilized, they're no longer di- in a diabetic range, their inflammation markers go away, their gut function's better, the joints stop hurting, and mental health is normal how is that possibly bad? I, mean, I I just, you know, because this, you know, this assumes the assumption is we can look at nutrition studies and, and predict the future and say, you know, all this diet is going to lead to heart disease and cancer when in fact, no studies have ever been done, will ever be done, can ever be done. That can support the causality on that because you just can't do the proper study. So you do these really, really weak, poor associative studies called epidemiologic studies to try to try to, to make those you know logical leaps and it's just bad bad data and so I would rather say if I can take somebody who's sick and make them healthy by almost every objective and subjective standard then by definition that has helped that person and has not hurt that person
0: I think we um, just to kind of explain to the audience because I, I think we're kind of we're so deep into the nutrition trenches ourselves so we are very um aware of like where this comes from and everything but uh where where, where the bad mouthing comes from when it comes to meat for example it is these uh very weak studies as you say and i don't know if it would be fair but um this is my interpretation of it so maybe you can, you can correct me guys if i'm wrong but it is basically me going out here on the street asking people, what did you eat the last 50 years? Tell me now and then uh, they're they're, going to just, you know, make up with whatever they ate. And then from that, I'm going to try to conclude uh, that Oh, uh, this, uh, yeah, I see most of these people that are they are they have some kind of sickness now. So they ate meat. uh, But in in my questions, I never asked them if they smoked. I never asked them if they had like a sedentary job. Um, I didn't ask them how much uh, cereals they were eating, maybe. Um, So there's a lot of like, things that we, we are not seeing in those studies. And um, is that a fair, like description of, of those
1: Well, I mean, I think they do in some of the studies try to confound for some of those variables, smoking, drinking, obesity. But I mean, the honest question is, you know, it's really, really difficult to remember what you ate for the last six months. In fact, when they validate those studies, those food frequency questionnaires, invariably people get things so wrong, they can't remember what they ate. And so you've got really bad data. We don't know, we really have no idea what these people are eating. They're kind of guessing and like maybe and a lot of times they overestimate how many fruits and vegetables they eat because they think that's the right thing to say and they underestimate some of the other things so we get a really just really poor data and then when we get that data and then we ask them you know we 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 try to extrapolate that over 20 years which diet people's diets change over 20 years tremendously often i mean they just they go from one diet to the next and for some time they're eating a lot of this and sometimes they're eating a lot of that so it varies significantly and then the other thing is you know then the then the sort of associations come out and the relative you know risk of something is like Well, there's a 20% difference, which is meaningless when we look at nutritional epidemiology. We really need to see, at bare minimum, a 200% difference. And many people will want to see a 500% difference before you can ever start to talk about causality. And it's almost never that those studies reach those critical thresholds. And so you just just have a bunch of wasted time and money uh, on this stuff. And so this is, like I said, we need to focus on the here and now. I mean, if somebody comes into CrossFit, and they're morbidly obese, or they're you know hundred pounds overweight, and they start exercising, they clean up their diet, and they lose the weight, and they get in shape. You have helped that person. I don't care what their diet was. I mean, it's you know we got to look at the endpoints that really matter to people, and look at look at what's going on today.
0: We talked about this today, Mark. Is how like uh, just looking at people's diet and this kind of how how honest are you toward yourself, right? so we we see this when we're coaching uh nutrition clients and so on that they're also self deceiving right with their diet sure. and so uh, put that into the picture of now that person who is he can't even estimate what he ate last week because he he's kind of dreaming up the numbers and everything now like let's let's try to get this guy to talk about like his last year or six months or whatever it might be and i think this is like the 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 lesson to the, the audience here is like uh, take your pen and paper now and write down what you ate the last six months can you do it yes or no and and like from Monday to Sunday exactly how many grams and how much did you sleep and how much did you exercise and everything and uh yeah that's your hom- homework guys I've been listening um but yeah um so that that's that's basically where this kind of Thing comes from that meat might be dangerous for you, um, but um, yeah, how 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 would we uh, approach um, to put m- meat back into the diet if we say that? How would how would you make, do we mix that into a normal diet? We say
1: yeah. So like
0: um, that question came to my mind because in Germany it's it's quite a wild concept, even though they love meat it's wild to think about just eating meat solely that just doesn't seem that doesn't make sense. And that that won't resonate with anyone. So I just thought like when you do your nutrition consultations, you have kind of like like, uh, some kind of like carnival ish diet that you kind of start with or, well, how does that work
1: yeah i mean i don't think everybody needs to be on a meat only diet i don't want to, to come off saying that that, happens. that helps a lot of people it's an elimination diet it helps people solve problems there's a lot of foods that impact our health and i think figuring that out sometimes takes make, take takes making things simplified many people thrive on a meat only diet so it's you know it's it's sometimes tapering people off of different whether it's carbohydrates or fiber or Certain other types of food, we we, we sometimes will do that. Um, I tell people, you know, most of the people that are they're reaching out to me from a health standpoint are trying to figure out, you know, figure out a health problem. So I said, well, we need to be this, do this in a logical fashion. So we eliminate, and then we we kind of maintain for a while, and then we add back in. And what you can add back in is probably less than you're currently eating. Uh, and so that's that's how I approach that. Now, from an athlete standpoint um many athletes you know will find that putting meat in the diet particularly a lot of meat is very very beneficial to performance to recovery to building muscle to to to, you know strength to weight ratios i mean you know being lean and strong is obviously never a bad thing you you know particularly in crossfit or really almost any sport you know there's very few sports super heavyweight powerlifting maybe sumo wrestlers where you just need to be big as possible but um you know i think that uh and then we talk about carbohydrates. I don't view carbohydrates necessarily as a bad thing. I view that some of the the things are wrapped in, some of the things are packaged with can be problematic for certain people. And that could include things like vegetables and fruits. I know that's sort of crazy to talk about, but there are some people like, you know, we know for a fact, if you eat too much spinach, you maybe people eating these spinach smoothies, can cause nephritis. It can cause, you know, the oxalates can cause damage to the to the kidneys. So there's other things that occur. There's people that don't tolerate gluten's well. There's people that don't tolerate lectins well. Um, it just depends on the individual. And so if you're having this this chronic rash you can't figure out, or this this mental health issue you can't figure it out, why not eliminate things, figure it out, and then put it back in? I will tell you that meat is a very safe food. It's probably one of the safest foods out there from a, from an from an irritation. Uh, you know sensitivity standpoint
0: yeah we uh, you were touching this a bit with the uh, uh when it comes to healthcare. is the the envir- environmental part of it uh of sickness how about the environmental part of of uh of meat and meat production
1: yeah and unfortunately i have to leave in one minute so i'll see if i can bring the rep wrap it up um i think that you know the uh, um you know the, the impact of meat on the environment is far far overstated relative to what really things impact the environment i mean we you know i i've got at my website meatorex.com. we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles and data and information and scientific studies that, that would that would counter what we see about you know meat being the most harmful thing you know it's, it's there's a plant based agenda where they want to you know uh tell you that not eating meat is going to save the environment that that's not true at all that's not going to make any significant difference now are there ways we can we can better manage and raise our animals yes i think that's that's fair to say but to say that giving up all meat is the only thing or the best thing we can do for the the planet is is just ridiculous and it's there's so much information we've counted that guys unfortunately i have to leave to do a consultation i appreciate it yeah, uh, no. thank you very much
0: i'm so, so no per- worries. glad a pleasure. for your for time thank you okay
1: no problem thanks guys